Emergency Medical Minute proudly presents Dr. Olga Dobronowski, who shares her experiences on Denali and advice for preparing for and recognizing altitude-induced illnesses. This is Untamed, Medicine in Wilderness, Wilderness is Medicine. Thank you, John. Um, so I'm Olga Dobranowski, and uh, I like to climb hills, little hills, not always uh, big hills. So I'll take you on a journey on my first uh, mountain today. So this is Denali. And on June 1st, this year, 2018, um, briefly five months ago, I stood on a summit of Denali at uh, 20,000 feet and 300. It's the highest mountain of North America. And it wouldn't be anything unusual about that, but on that summit, I was by myself. I had no climbing partners. I climbed Denali solo. I had no rope. And I had skis on my back, and I was hoping to ski down from the summit. And it was very, very cold. It was about minus 35 degrees Fahrenheit with some very significant wind chills. So it was cold to the point that my water that was in insulated parka in my backpack froze completely. I had a thermos with hot tea, but that froze too, and I couldn't unscrew the top of the thermos. And all my food and snacks turned into bricks, and I was unable to eat. It was 7 o'clock in the evening, but the sun was still very high. So Denali being at 62 degree latitude north, is in the climbing season, starting about mid-May to mid-July, so kind of late spring, early summer. The sunset is at midnight, and the sunrise is just before 4 o'clock in the morning. So for about two hours, between 1 and 3 maybe, you get a little twilight, but it never gets dark to the point that you would need a headlamp. The one piece of equipment that I religiously carry on all my trips, and I obviously had it on the Nali, and I never used it on Denali, was a headlamp. In fact, I had two headlamps, and I never had to use it. So this is kind of what it looks like at 1 o'clock in the morning. This was actually as I was skiing down. Down below, the little city that you see, that's actually a 14,000 camp, which is the busiest camp, because this is the most comfortable camp, kind of protected from the wind. And you see Mount Foraker in the background, and you see some climbers climbing up. So this was on my ski descent towards my tent, which was on the 14,000. And um, on the summit, it was so cold that I really was not able to take many pictures. So I only have few. I was able to take one crappy selfie with my cell phone. <laughs> the next one will be just an elevation marker of the summit, just to prove that I was there. And the next one is a panorama shot. Beautiful, right? So like Don said, I had this dream. I wanted to climb Denali. Um, but I have a full-time job. I work as a physician. I often work 12-hour-long shifts at the hospital and sometimes night shifts. And the typical expedition uh, takes about three, three and a half to even four weeks to climb Denali. And so I, was never be, I would never be able to climb that if I needed to take a month off. It's a very difficult mountain. You might hear that Denali is taller than Everest. It's not exactly true that elevation is 20,000 versus Everest is 29. 
But what we call a vertical relief is actually taller on the Nile. So if you count the elevation gain from the base to the top on the Nile, it's 18,000 feet versus only 12 on Everest. Because it's so far north, it's only three and a half degree latitude south of Arctic Circle, it's very, the oxygen is even lower than on any other mountains. So the oxygen content on Denali on the summit is only 42% compared to the sea level. So it's a, it's a big challenging mountain and you carry a lot of gear. There is no Sherpas, there is no one to carry your gear. You can't hire uh, anybody and you, you don't have any animals. So you have to carry everything by yourself. So I had this dream that I wanted to do it in much shorter time. I wanted to do a rapid ascent, and I started training. So this is the amount of gear that I needed to carry by myself. It's 73 pounds, including my winter camping and tent and ski gear and fuel and food for 10 days. And I had a summit bag strapped to a big pack, and I had a tent, and I had a poop can that you are obligated to carry on Mount of Denali. And that all is about 70, 72% of my body weight. So that's quite a lot. I'll let you make the calculation and it's really <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> um, so I decided I'm going to start training. And I believe in very sport-specific training and activities. So before my trip to Denali, I was doing a lot of carrying heavy backpack. I would carry water jugs in my backpack and I would put my mountaineering boots and head on Gumanitu Springs and climb incline. That's 2,000 vertical feet over one mile, so it's essentially it's like a staircase. A perfect place uh, as a training venue. If you haven't been there, I highly recommend. It's really awesome views. Or I would go to a mini incline, which is in Castle Rock. And I would run laps and I would just carry increasingly higher weight and more laps. One time, a lady uh, stopped me on Castle Rock in Mini Incline, and I was carrying this really heavy backpack, giant mountaineering boots. I was huffing and puffing, and she stopped me and she said, Oh, honey, are you training for your first 14er? <laughs> Bless your heart! <laughs> I didn't say anything, <laughs> I just kept on going. My second favorite uh, type of training was a tire drag. So because on Denali, oftentimes you're obligated to pull some of the gear on, on the sled, I decided I'm going to train for that. So what I do is I have a spare SUV tire, my former winter tire in a garage, and behind my house is a beautiful hill, perfect for this kind of tire drive. I would wear my mountaineering boots, a big backpack full with water jugs, and then I would strap a tire to my waist, and I would simply drag it. Now, I live in a nice gated community. You should see faces of some of those people who drive by <laughs> and look at me, and I often wonder if they are about to call 911, <laughs> that there's some homeless bum <laughs> wondering if they're neighbor neighborhood, or they simply want to call a psych consult on me. <laughs> Before the trip on Denali, I decided to identify what can potentially kill me on that mountain and what I need to train for. My plan was essentially, if I want to climb really fast and do rapid ascent, then I want to prepare everything ahead of time. So that's my training. I want to come up with a perfect solution as far as my ski boots that are normally not meant to ski in minus 35 degree Fahrenheit. So stay as warm as possible. Think about my food, think about my hydration system, my fuel, my stove, etc. 
But the most important part was also um, an acclimatization. As you know, people who go to Denali or any higher mountains spend a lot of time just slowly getting acclimated. And that takes time. The most natural way to get acclimated is just slowly go up, come down and sleep low. And that's what people do. So on Denali, people would carry half of their or one third of their gear, go up to the next camp, cache that gear, and then come down and sleep low. Get a little better acclimated, and then the next do the same. And for three weeks, all you do is carry that gear, but in the same time, you're getting acclimated. That didn't sound like fun to me. So I decided I'm going to speed up that process. This is, ladies and gentlemen, the future of mountain medicine, alpinism, and mountaineering. Those are my kids. I'm not talking about them. <laughs> As you know, training for Denali is a family effort. So this is my kids training with me and getting acclimated. In my own bedroom, I strapped that hypoxic tent. So what it does is that it creates an environment where next, you can't see it quite in a picture, but there's a generator standing next to the bed, and it blows a special concentration of um, air. It changes the mixture between nitrogen and oxygen, and it, with different setting, you start decreasing the content of oxygen. It's called normal baric hypoxia. Um, just two fancy words to say that we're not playing with, um, ox we're not playing with uh, pressure. We can't easily change the pressure in bedroom with this kind of plastic tent, but we can change the oxygen content. So that's not exactly, it doesn't exactly mimic what's happening on the mountain, because on the mountain, it's the pressure that drops. The higher we go, the pressure drops. It's not the oxygen content, right? So at sea level, there's 78% of nitrogen and 21% of oxygen. What is it in Denver? The same, right? What is it on the summit of Denali? The same, it's still always 21% of oxygen. What is it on Everest? It's exactly the same. It's just that as we climb higher, the, the, the pressure, barometric pressure drops, so it becomes so there's less and less oxygen available to our body. So the way this tent works is that we change, we lower systematically, week by week, um, the content of oxygen that, that we sleep in. And there is a large data of studies that are coming now. It's very new technology. It's about two, three years that we have newer and newer studies showing that it actually does work. If we spend every night at least seven hours in this tent, um, it does prevent um, prevalence of acute mountain sickness. So this was my way of getting pre-acclimated. I would go to work, come back, and sleep in this tent. And I would start at 12,000 and slowly build up to about 18,000 just before my trip to Denali. So the trip to Denali starts with this little plane that you take from Talkeetna, and this is actually a landing strip, so this is a base camp. Let's see the next one. And then you start hiking and hiking and hiking and hiking. And you see those gentlemen carrying their sleds and big backpacks. Um, most people climb on snowshoes. Some people climb on skis. Let's see the next one. This, more of this, but beautiful scenery. That's kind of the view that you might have every single day. Let's see the next one. This is the view that shows the 14,000 camp down low. And this is the view from the top of what's called a head wall. And you can see almost pieces of fixed line. This is kind of the steepest part of climb on Denali between 14 and 17,000 camp. We also like to have fun on Denali. So 
I was by myself. However, I made friends with a lot of people at 14,000 camp. And um, since it's very cold and in the evening there's really nothing to do, people tend to congregate in kind of those big dining tents. And this gentleman here who has the guitar, that's Vern Tejas. He is one of the most prolific and famous mountain guides, and he only climbed Denali 57 times. <laughs> he also carries a guitar every single mountain that he climbs, and he brings that, he carries that guitar, he literally put it on top of his sled, and he pulled it um, all the way up. He takes this guitar out on the summit and entertain his clients. So on the weather day, I had two bad weather days that we were stuck on 14,000 camp. I would make friends with them, and I would listen to him playing the guitar. That was really, really fun. And this is after I climbed Denali in seven days. Um, and this is on my way down. I got to enjoy the most fun ski descent from 14,000 to seven across almost 10 miles. If it wasn't for that heavy backpack, it would have been amazing. But I had a bluebird day and a perfect corn, and I was stopping every now and then just trying to decide, do I want to stop and drop my pack and take pictures because it looks so amazing, or do I want to keep going because it's just so much fun? So let's talk about altitude illnesses. Uh, there is di several different altitude illnesses, and we can um, spend hours talking about just that. You are all familiar with acute mountain sickness. It's the most common that I guarantee all of you and all of us had here being in Colorado. After a while, when you, we haven't been in the mountains, we go to a 14er, and we kind of have this little headache. We might have to slow down. Maybe our stomach doesn't feel too good, there's a little bit of nausea, nothing severe, nothing serious, but that's acute mountain sickness. Out of all of them, I wanted to focus on the two that are most dangerous and, most, and those that can actually kill you. It's haze and hape. So haze is high-altitude cerebral edema. What happens is that because of low oxygen at altitude, your brain starts to be leaky and tend to swell up. So you imagine it's not a good thing, the brain swells up in a closed skull, and it causes two things. It impairs our cognition and impairs our body, how it functions and coordinations. So the two cardinal symptoms that I want you to remember is, one, you lose your cognition slowly but slowly. Initially, it's just little disorientation, it's little confusion, but as it progresses, you can become lethargic and you can develop coma. People do die from haze. The mortality, if we don't descend, is about 62%. The second symptom is ataxia. It's just a fancy word to say that we're so uncoordinated when, when we walk that we walk like a, drunk like a drunk person. It's unsafe for that climber who develop brain swelling to actually down-climb. It wouldn't be realistic to expect that that person can down-climb by themselves. So those people have to be evacuated. When I was on Denali, the very last hill, just before the summit ridge, it's called the Pig Hill. And it's the very last steep part. I already transitioned to my crampons. I had skis on my backpack. And I, was, I witnessed the most horrifying scene that I've ever seen on the mountains. There were two climbers in front of me, 
right above me. They were roped up, but they were not attached to the mountains. They were not using any running belays. They were not using any um, pickets or any kind of protection. So if one person falls, they both fall. Um, if they fall, they fall right on top of me, so they take me down. The lower climber has, is definitely struggling and is not able to walk. He's attempting to make a step, and he falls over every single time. Unfortunately, what his climbing partner does is that he pulls as hard as he can with the rope. He pulls him up. He's trying to pull him up forcefully up the mountain. He's still trying to make him climb. I approach those climbers. I introduce myself. I explain that I am a physician and I have mountain medicine treat expertise and, and I'm an expedition physician. I have altitude medication and I'm concerned that his life is in jeopardy, that I would like to help them. And I heard the famous F word. And, they, and the, the higher climber said essentially, we're gonna make it to the summit. He is going to summit. So what's happening, they both actually have a little bit of confusion. The lower climber has full-on haze. He's confused, he's disoriented, and he's unable to climb. He's actually unable to stand still and straight up. But the higher climber is still kind of with it and is climbing fine. The problem is he has now a summit fever. And by all means, he's trying to pull his partner up. I, long story short, utilizing other teams and the other climbers on the mountain, we convinced them that they need to be lower, that they need to turn around. They were given medication. I used my inReach phone to contact mountaineering rangers, and the helicopter came very quickly, and he got short haul and bas in a basket, was placed in a hospital, and um, was completely fine the next day. This person would have died. If he continued to climb, he would have been dead. The treatment, so the two symptoms that I want you to remember is one is confusion. You can't really make decisions on your own. Your life is in your climbing partner's hands. In your best interest, you want to teach your climbing partner about those symptoms and about the treatment, because you will not be able to make that decision and you will not be able to climb. So confusion and, and ataxia, the two cardinal symptoms of haze. The treatment, I call it 3D. The first one is dexamethasone, which is famous steroids. We can give it in a form of tablets or we can give it as an injection. I'm pretty sure you've all seen in the movies when they have pre-filled syringes and just go straight through the clothing. Um, it's shown in all famous movies. So dexamethasone. <laughs> the second one is descent. And that's an absolute mast. Descend, descend, descend. And the third one is a device. It's a communication device. You have to be able to contact uh, and reach for help. The two climbers who I described, Korean climbers, were part of the nine-people group. And they did not have inReach. They did not have radio. Or they did not have satellite phone, even though it's required on Denali. So for eight-people team, they didn't have a single communication device. I carry my inReach phone all the time with me, and I hope to never have to use it, but that's one of the 3D. So dexamethasone descent and device, communication device. The second um, disease that I want to talk about is pulmonary edema. Same concept, low oxygen content, cause your lungs now to be leaky. 
So you accumulate fluid in your lungs, and you develop this awful fatigue and shortness of breath, and it progresses very quickly to the point that you can't even go up. You start having cough. You even have shortness of breath at rest. Um, and again, descent, descent, descent. This illness has 42% of mortality. So both of them are very, very high in mortality and very high consequences. So a couple questions. Let's see if we can get some answers. Truth or fiction? Adequate hydration prevents acute mountain sickness. What do you think? So adequate hydration is absolutely necessary on the mountain, and we always encourage to stay hydrated. But does it prevent acute mountain sickness? No. So you can drink gallons of water every single day, and you may still develop acute mountain sickness. Moderate aerobic training prior to ascent can prevent altitude sickness. What do you think? False. It's not true. So you can be the strongest athlete. You can be a triathlete and marathon runner and be in the best shape of your life. You're still prone to develop altitude illness. You are not protected just because you're fit. Okay. I apologize. There are kids, including mine, in the audience. <laughs> the next question is about Viagra. Is an important medicine for the prevention of hape? So actually, it is true, and we use Viagra for not so much prevention as it is for treatment. So once we develop that pulmonary edema, you might not have the use for Viagra, the typical use, but you might actually use it for your pulmonary edema. So if you carry Viagra up in the mountains on Denali as a performance-enhancing drug, you can use it when you start developing pulmonary edema. Caffeine should be avoided at altitudes. What do you think? Another performance-enhancing drug. So that's not true. Actually, if you drink caffeine every day, you should continue doing that on the mountain. The worst thing that you want to do is stop drinking caffeine, and then you have caffeine withdrawal headaches, which are the cardinal symptoms of all of those altitude illnesses. On top of that, caffeine is a diuretic. It's like a water pill. So if you think that most medication, like Diamox, work to remove water, that's how caffeine works. So it actually works in our advantage. Every single book and every single journal out there, especially the ones that you can view for free in Summit County, will say avoid caffeine. That's not true. So drink coffee as much as you want. Okay, can I have the next one? Diamox makes beer taste bad. True or false? True. So I heard. I don't drink beer, but um, there is two very famous side effects of Diamox. So Diamox is the number one medication that we use in altitude illness. It is being used for prevention and also for treatment of acute mountain sickness. It is a water pill. It is a form of diuretic. The two famous side effects is one: it makes beer taste really bad and sour. So if you take Diamox to climb the mountain and then you come down and you want to pay. $50 at the base camp from a Sherpa to have your celebration beer, think about it again. <laughs> you might not enjoy that beer. 
The second famous side effect that I try to warn all my patients and climbing partners who go on the elevation is that we might develop, while taking Diamox, a little bit of numbness and tingling in our hands and feet. Not a big deal, it goes away very quickly as soon as we stop the medication. But what comes in mind when you're climbing a cold, tall mountain and you started losing sensation in your fingers? Oh my goodness, I'm getting frostbite, right? So that's not exactly true. That numbness and that tingling is actually just um, a side effect. Sleep is disrupted on elevation. Is it true? Yes, so periodic breathing is a form of central apnea. It's essentially we are all bound to have a poor quality sleep on, uh, on elevation. And again, the Diamox prophylactic, very small dose at bedtime, is a treatment proposed uh, for that. There are 20 genes responsible for adaptation to altitude. True or false? There's 5,000 genes that are up, being upregulated when we go to elevation. They just named 5,000 genes, and they continue to discover more, so more than 20. <laughs> Hypoxic normobaric tents are proven to decrease prevalence and severity of AMS. That's true. So those tents, the one that I use, and there's several different companies, they do decrease the prevalence and severity of symptoms of acute mountain sickness. Let's see the next one. So carry your pulse oximetry. This is a small device. It costs less than 10 bucks on Amazon, every single retail pharmacy. It measures your saturation. So when you go to the mountain, put it on a warm finger, warm it up, always at rest, and check your saturation. It will give you a heart rate, and it will give you the oxygen saturation. Can I see the next one? And it's time for homework. So I want you to think about one little thing that you learn tonight. Out of all the speakers that you heard, and we're still gonna hear Aaron, think about one little things. One little thing that maybe inspired you, that maybe you wanna remember. And before you go to bed, put it on your phone, write it down somewhere, put it on a sticky note, but make an effort to write it down or type it. And then share it with another person. Share it with your friend, share it with maybe your co-worker who is not even into wilderness, or a spouse, or a climbing partner. Teach someone something that you learned tonight. The more we spread that education about safety in wilderness, the safer we're going to make wilderness a safer place for all of us to enjoy. Thank you. <laughs>